If I were to ask you this morning, especially coming on the heels of the song we have just sung, to provide me with an example of great faith, what examples would you provide? How would you answer? Perhaps there's a person that comes to mind that you know or have known. Perhaps it's one from history. There's certainly many examples we have through history of men and women who have demonstrated great faith in God. I think of examples like George Mueller, whose faith led to the founding of orphanages in England. And the stories around his prayer life and his faith are something to marvel at. It's almost surreal. I think of examples like Amy Carmichael, a missionary to India, or Gladys Elward in China. And then there are the reformers and the pre-reformers, many of them that you may not know about. We have the early church martyrs. We have those Christians who faced death in the arenas by wild beasts. Then you turn your attention to the pages of scripture. Perhaps you immediately think of when it comes to great faith, Hebrews 11, that great hall of faith. Or perhaps you think of the Apostle Paul, Timothy, one of the other early evangelists. Now, each of these would be excellent examples of great faith. But I want to ask you, can you tell me what person or persons in Scripture, during Jesus' earthly ministry, did he declare have great faith? Did you realize there's only two? And would it surprise you maybe a little further to know that both of those were Gentiles? The first, you may remember, back in Matthew 8, was a Roman centurion who came to Christ begging and pleading on behalf of his servant. Christ healed him, marveling at his great faith and his response. But there's one other person. It's a person we're going to meet this morning. An obscure woman from a region of Tyre and Sidon north of Israel, who comes to Jesus pleading for the healing of her daughter from demon possession. This morning, we will be challenged as we measure our own faith against this woman's and as we consider her example to us as we seek to increase the measure of our own faith. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to Matthew chapter 15 as we continue our study through the Gospel of Matthew, picking up in Verse 21, Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And a Canaanite woman from that region came out and began to cry out, saying, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and implored him, saying, Send her away, because she keeps shouting at us. But he answered and said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and began to bow down before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered and said, It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she said, Yes, Lord. But even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Then the Lord said to her, 
Oh, woman, your faith is great. It shall be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed at once. Let's pray. Father, as we consider this story, an example that is provided for us that has been preserved through the ages of great faith. Father, I pray that we would not shirk back from comparing our own faith against this, acknowledging where we fall short, but yearning and striving all the more to increase our faith, that we may hear those precious words, well done, good and faithful servant. Help us this morning as we study your word. May the truth that is contained, the example that is provided, the instructions and application that needs to be worked and wrought by your spirit, would it happen in our lives? Would we be faithful to put into practice these things? In your name, amen. Well, this morning we're going to begin at the end, or at least by starting by looking at verse 28 for a moment. It may concern you if you're used to going verse by verse. Don't worry, we'll go back to the beginning and start there in a moment. But I want to look at this word faith. We're about to have a discussion on faith. We're going to talk about great faith. It's helpful and it's necessary that we talk about faith. One of the cries of the Reformation was sola fide, faith alone. But what does that mean? What does faith alone mean? I'd be ashamed to spend the next 30 to 40 minutes discussing faith without defining it. You see, faith is one of those Christian words that is used so frequently that everyone seems to assume they know what it means. The problem is when you begin to ask someone to define it, and maybe more than one person to define it, you're left with the words of Inigo Montoya from The Princess Bride ringing in your ears. You keep using that word. I do not think that word means what you think it means. You see, faith is a word that can apply many different things depending upon its object and its context. For example, I can have faith that my car will start in the morning. Or I can have faith that my spouse will always love me. Those are very different forms of faith, aren't they? The writer of Hebrews notes at the beginning of Hebrews 11.1, 1, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. But you see, one of the unique things about that, and the reason that verse doesn't stand alone, is that he has spent the previous ten chapters establishing the object of that faith. The object, the great high priest, the mediator we were reminded of this morning in our scripture reading, who can sympathize with our weaknesses. Christ crucified. Biblical faith is rooted and grounded in Christ Jesus. There are many in the church today who say they have faith. But it is the object of that faith that needs to be questioned. For some, their faith is in persons or a person. For others, it's a system. For others, it's just the idea of faith itself. There are any number of things. This Gentile woman from the region of Tyre and Sidon is going to teach us this morning. She's going to teach us concerning the nature of true saving faith through the person and promises of Jesus Christ. 
And in verse 28, Jesus ascribes to this woman not just faith, but great faith. What is particularly striking about this ascription is that in chapter 14, the spokesman of the disciples, the great apostle Peter, the one upon whom the church was founded, was described as what in verse 31? Having little faith. Well, I'm certain that Peter was humbled by Jesus' words that night on the storm as Jesus reached down to rescue him. I'm equally certain that the words to this Gentile woman just days later were equally humbling as he further contemplated what Jesus had said to him. But we should note that it did not cause Peter to despair. Peter did not remain in that state of little faith. Peter went on to become the leader of the Jerusalem church, a great evangelist, theologian, and eventually martyr for his faith. By the time of his death, Peter's faith was anything but small. But even Peter learned from this Gentile Canaanite woman that day. That's for this reason we start in verse 28, noting the great faith of this woman, because most of us this morning have faith that is small, or at least smaller than this woman's. And it's examples like these that encourage and spur us to greater faith. As we look at this text and these verses, I want to suggest that this story about great faith can be outlined around four scenes. We see faith's approach, faith's testing, faith's appeal, and finally, faith's reward. Faith's approach, its testing, its appeal, and its reward. However, before we look at that approach, we note in verse 21 the region from which she came, Tyre and Sidon. She was a Gentile woman from the region of Tyre and Sidon. It lay to the north of Israel, bordering on Galilee. Israel had enjoyed a rather complicated relationship with those two nations. At times, they appear friendly, even joining to some extent in the worship of Yahweh. However, later in Israel's history, they were revealed as enemies, incurring the wrath and condemnation of God's prophets, specifically Isaiah and Amos. However, because of the period of friendly interaction, there must have been, for at least some time, exposure to the hope, the promises given to Israel concerning her God, Yahweh, and his promised Messiah. How much of that remained, we don't know, but we would expect very little. And yet, we read in the text this Canaanite woman who knows Jesus, not just as some miracle worker out of Galilee, but as the son of David, a strictly messianic term. I'm reminded of the arrival of the Magi in Matthew 2. The 70 years of influence that Daniel and his friends had in the courts of Babylon had tremendous impact. You see, the promises of the Messiah echoed down through the centuries, not only of Israel, but of the promises that encompass the whole world regarding this King, Jesus Christ. It's likewise relevant to notice once again the breadth of Jesus' popularity and ministry as we begin. Here he is in thoroughly Gentile territory. This is dirty Gentile territory. It's where you shake the dust off your feet when you're coming back into Israel. And yet people are still flocking to him. He's well known. 
Jesus and his ministry and his message has been proclaimed even into the Gentile nations. It's growing and it's expanding quickly. Mark 7, 24 tells us that Jesus tried to escape notice. He just wanted to go rest in a home, but he was immediately recognized and word spread and people began to arrive just as they did in Galilee and in all of Israel. And it was in this house to which the Canaanite woman came as soon as word reached her that Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, has come to Tyre and Sidon. Verse 22 begins with a behold that is left untranslated in several English versions, but it really should be included because it adds emphasis. It draws our attention to the uniqueness of this situation. Behold, a Gentile and a woman approaches Jesus. We have Jesus in a house to the north of Galilee when faith approaches in verse 22. And there's three things to notice about faith's approach in verse 22 that are instructive for us as we seek to grow in our faith. You see, she came to the right person, she came in the right spirit, and she came with the right plea. There are any number of places one might go when they need healing. We have doctors, we have chiropractors, we have specialists of all sorts, but when it comes to the soul, there is but one place where healing can be found. I mean, there are plenty of false religions that claim to be able to help the soul, promising spiritual healing, when in fact they enslave or condemn. Sadly, there are even those who engage in malpractice under the guise of Christianity. But as the apostles preached in Acts 4.12, there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby one can be saved. Jesus declared in John 14.6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Not a way and a truth and a life, but the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The healing this woman sought was spiritual the salvation of her daughter, so she looked to Jesus. True and saving faith looks only to Jesus as the solution to what lies behind the pain, the difficulty, the suffering of this life. Only Jesus can bring to realization what we truly long and truly hope for. That rest, that eternal rest that we long for, that we ache for, that we feel with every pain that we go throughout the week. What was Peter's great error while on the sea? Taking his eyes off of Jesus. Here this woman looks to Jesus. What makes faith great is the object of your faith. The greater the object of my faith and conviction, the greater my faith is. And the greater it can grow. Great faith recognizes the right object of faith, which is Jesus Christ. When you are struggling, when you are hurting, when all hope is lost, where do you turn? Tim Challies notes, the smallest bit of faith in God is worth infinitely more than the greatest bit of faith in ourselves. Faith counts for nothing unless its object is Jesus Christ. Well, secondly, faith approaches in a right spirit. Notice how she approaches. She speaks like a disciple, addressing Jesus as Lord, Master. She shows deference and humility. 
and trust. Her plea here is rightly categorized as a prayer. Her prayer was for mercy, for the healing of her daughter. As she comes in prayer, she recognizes the authority of the one to whom she prays. And so she shows deference to him. In fact, she goes further and speaks like a believing Israelite, calling him son of David. Faith approaches with a humility, recognizing this king, the Messiah, the son of David. When you approach God in prayer, do you approach in the spirit? Do you approach and recognize the one to whom you pray in worship? If you struggle to know how you should approach God in prayer, read the Psalms. They are filled with prayers. And watch the way the psalmists approach God through prayer. Thirdly, she came with a right prayer or plea or approached with a right prayer or plea. What was the content of faith's plea? Mercy. Mercy for herself and salvation for her daughter. Her prayer was aligned with the desire of God. It was not for her wealth or her status in this life. It was not selfishness that motivated her prayer, but a plea for mercy and salvation. We should be careful to pay attention to the content of our prayers. What are they filled with? Are they concerned with those things that burden the heart of God? If you wonder what those things are, what are the things that burden the heart of God? Read the prayers of Paul as he prays for believers in the epistles. Note those things for which he asks of the believers and note those things that he asks for himself. Read the Lord's Prayer. Study it. Read Psalm 23. Watch how David prays. Note faith's prayer is also specific. How many of us pray without specificity? How many times have you heard or even prayed the generic, Lord bless us, Lord bless me? What does that mean? What do you want? How do you want to be blessed? In what ways are you going to be blessed? How will you know if you're being blessed? We must learn to pray with specificity so that we may watch our prayers answered in specificity. One of the surest paths to increased and strengthened faith is answered prayer. And this will not happen if you are not praying and this will not happen if you are not praying with specificity because you won't even know your prayer is answered. Pray with specificity. This was faith's approach. Well, what follows is where the rubber meets the road. Our faith has grown through testing and trial. That should be obvious in your life if you've lived any number of years, but we also have the words of James who writes in James 1, noting that the testing of our faith produces endurance. And he goes on to say it's with the goal of making you mature and complete. And so any discussion of developing great faith would be incomplete without testing or trial. Well, verses 23, 24, and 26 contain this woman's testing, and we see faith's testing. We first note how Christ tested her by silence. If there's any test we can empathize with, 
It is wondering if God notices, if God hears, and if God cares, isn't it? She's crying out. She's praying over and over. But the language of verse 22 and the response of the disciples in verse 23 seem to indicate that it is. It's just it's continuous praying, pleading. She didn't just make her plea once and then walk away or sit quietly. It was over and over and over again. And Jesus sits there silently. Can you imagine? It's one thing if you aren't sure if someone is able to hear you. But when someone is sitting there, you see them. You know they hear you. And they refuse to even acknowledge you. Is there anything more irritating? More frustrating? If you have children, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And yet there's no indication she became impatient, that she became angry. Instead, she just exhibited the attitude of the neighbor in Luke 11, 5 through 10, who would not stop knocking on the door until his friend answered. She was knocking at the gate of heaven over and over and over again, pleading with the king to see her plight. And he wouldn't answer. So the disciples intervene. Most commentators believe that they didn't just ask Jesus to dismiss her, but to give her what she wants, answer the prayer and send her away. I think they're right. Because why else would Jesus respond to the disciples with the statement and explanation he does about only being sent to the lost sheep of Israel? It wouldn't make sense unless the disciples had asked him to please intervene, give her what she wants. And we'll look at Jesus' seeming indifference in a moment, but first consider, how many times have you prayed and felt as if there was no response? The reminder here of great faith is that it continues to pray. It does not lose heart. Certainly, inspect your attitude, your approach, the content of your prayer, but the example of faith is to continue persevering in prayer. You see, God has much to teach us that would be missed if every prayer were answered immediately. Our faith would not grow nearly as fast. It would not be as strong if every prayer were answered the way we asked and in the timing we asked for it. So do not lose hope. Do not lose patience. Keep praying. Jesus tests her yet again. Verse 24, this time by seeming indifference. We know Jesus cares. He has compassion. That's been put in front of us over and over and over again. But notice in verse 24, when he finally responds, it's not even to the woman. It's to the disciples. Again, can you imagine? He's talking about like she's not even there. He's addressing the disciples as if she's not even in the room. He doesn't answer her constant pleading. Instead, he answers the disciples. Her faith is being tested to the extreme. Yet as we will note regarding her response, this testing reveals the depth of her character and faith. And skipping ahead, it makes the answer all the more 
valuable. Now her response in verse 25 is important and we'll look at that in a moment, but first, look at the third aspect of testing in verse 26. If silence wasn't enough, if apparent indifference wasn't enough, now it's outright reproach. I don't care what culture you're in, being called a dog doesn't really do much for your self-esteem. No matter how much you like dogs, you don't want to be called one. Why was Jesus putting her through this? Here's the answer. I believe he put her through this for the sake of the disciples. He put her through this and through this testing so that we would have an example to look back on. He put her through this for the sake of Peter. One important thing to keep in mind is this, your testing and trial is rarely just about you. And it's rarely just for your benefit. Your testing and trial and how you respond will have significant impact on those around you. God has orchestrated the events, the people, the situation all around you. He's playing chess while we're still learning the rules to checkers. Think of Job and the impact that his testing had, not only on his friends, but all those who read his story since. Or on Abraham and his testing with regard to Isaac. How many times have you learned after the fact how your testing, how your experience has impacted those around you? Hopefully for the better, not the worst. How many times have you found that others were watching how you would respond or that your response impacted them in such a way? There are story after story after story of how God uses the testing of a believer to bring those who are watching to salvation, to minister in their lives, to prepare them and those watching for greater faith. Well, we have faith's approach and faith's testing. Next we have faith's appeal. Begins in verse 25. First thing to note in verse 25 is that great faith is worshipful and reverent. How did she respond when she hears Jesus' words? Not to her prayers and cries, but to his disciples that is seeming indifference. What does she do in verse 25? She comes and bows down. She was worshipful in her appeal. She never lost sight of the reality that he is God and I am not. How often do we lose sight of this? At times our familiarity with God and with Christ borders on irreligious and disrespect. Yes, Jesus is our brother and our dearest friend, but he is also much more than that. We must never lose sight of the fact that Jesus is king and must be mindful that we are to worship him when we come before him. Great faith recognizes this. It does not presume upon God. It worships him. It submits to him. Secondly, in her appeal, the second half of verse 25, faith is earnest. Her appeal was earnest. 
Here we see the earnestness of her worship and appeal. She moves from Lord, have mercy, to Lord, save me, help me. There is an earnestness to her plea. One of the things that grieves me is that as a church, we are not praying as we should. I'm grateful there are persons who are praying, but I'm burdened by how many more are not praying, not taking it seriously. You know, I look at our prayer sheet every month, and the paucity of prayers concerns me. Ask why. Is it because we're really doing so well as a church that we have so little that we need to pray for? Well, the number of prayers I write down and add to that sheet for my own sake every month tells me that's not the case. So the only other conclusion I can draw is that we're not serious about prayer or serious enough. If we want our faith to grow, we must be praying. We must put forward our prayers with specificity and with the earnestness of this woman. We must pray as if we can change the mind of God. Now, in no way am I denying the sovereignty of God, not in the least. He will do what he wishes and what he has designed, but I cannot get away from the fervency with which prayer is both expressed, taught, and exemplified throughout Scripture. The cross was a foregone conclusion, yet Christ wept blood in his prayers over that moment, asking that the cup would be removed. Moses entreated God on behalf of Israel with such earnestness that Scripture portrays it as if he had changed God's mind. Abraham pleaded with the pre-incarnate Christ over the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah to the point of absurdity in his efforts to preserve his nephew Lot. Paul tells us to pray without ceasing in 1 Thessalonians. David Livingston prayed with such consistency and fervency that he wore deep divots in the floorboards of his home with his knees. What marks great faith is earnestness in prayer. Well, not the only indicator, I would suggest that a key indicator of the greatness of one's faith is your earnestness in coming before the throne. Thirdly, we note faith's wisdom in her appeal. There's wisdom in this appeal, and we see that in verse 27. After pleading in earnestness, Lord, help me, he calls her, at least metaphorically, a dog. But notice her response. Notice the wisdom of her response. Faith responds not in indignation, but with unbelievable humility. She accepts the description. Not only that, she goes further. She calls the Israelites not simply children, but her master and demonstrates a clear understanding of the kingdom of God and the Messiah. She does not demonstrate envy over the position of the children of Israel, but demonstrates the very poverty of spirit Jesus introduces in the Sermon on the Mount. Faith understood her role in the economy of God. She knew her theology. How? We don't know exactly. We don't know where she had acquired the knowledge of Scripture and understanding of Jesus as the son of David and Messiah that she did. Like the Magi from the East, she demonstrates, however, tremendous insight and understanding into God's plan. 
She does not dispute that salvation is first to the Jews, but she knows and recognizes the overflowing abundance that comes from the Messiah, from God's salvation, which flows down like oil from Aaron's beard upon the Gentiles. And that's all she asked for. The overflow, the extra of the grace and mercy of God, the crumbs from the table. If she can only receive the crumbs, she knows that is enough. It will satisfy her deepest spiritual longing, her deepest need. Great faith requires wisdom and understanding. We live in a time when resources and tools we have for studying scripture are expansive. It's really never been easier to study the Bible. We have more extra biblical resources and books than a person could ever hope to consume in their lifetime, even after you get rid of all the junk. Are you being faithful with the time you have to grow and increase in knowledge like this Gentile woman? Are you faithful to study scripture, to attend to the study of God's word with other believers? If the study of scripture, both personally and corporately in the church, is not one of the highest priorities in your life, then you will never attain to great faith. Your faith will be severely stunted. We've observed faith's approach, faith's testing, and faith's appeal. We now get to see faith's reward in verse 28. And we see it. We see this reward unveiled in two parts. First, Christ commends this woman's faith. We do not often find descriptions of Christ using words of amazement. In Matthew 8.10, Jesus did marvel at the faith of the Gentile centurion. And here we see the expression, just an O, single letter in your English and a single letter in your Greek, in the Greek New Testament. It's an interjection. It expresses emotion. Some have even translated this Greek term with the English expression, I stand amazed. That one little letter. Jesus, with emotion and emphasis and a sense of wonder, says, Oh, woman, your faith is great. Though her request was for mercy, for help, for healing, and the salvation of her daughter, Faith first receives the commendation of her Savior and her King. You see, there is no greater honor than this, than to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. Secondly, he attends to her request. Because of her great faith, Christ grants her request. This again is why we pray with specificity so that we might see the answer and the reward of our faith. We read her daughter is healed at once. The immediacy of the healing underscores again the power and the authority of Christ over all spiritual things. And it proved that faith had indeed approached, pleaded, worshiped, and appealed to the right person. Faith had the right object the one who can heal body and soul, the Savior, the King, the Messiah, the one true God, Jesus Christ. Story ends there. 
It's abrupt, but it's complete. We know nothing further of this Gentile woman and her daughter. However, the message, the testimony, and the example of faith has been sovereignly preserved so that we might understand what great faith looks like. And like Peter, we might be exhorted and encouraged in our walk with the Lord so that however little our faith may be now, that it would grow, that it would attain to that great faith that we see this woman display. You know that Peter was not content with his faith that day. I doubt any of the other disciples were, were either. In fact, in chapter 8, all of them were described as having little faith. Reading the story this morning, I'm not content with mine. I hope you're not content with yours. So let us once again fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, and run with endurance the race that is set before us and during the tests that are going to come so that we might see this faith perfected and hear those precious words, well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Father, we offer a simple prayer this morning. Increase our faith. Lord, would you help us to be diligent to apply those things that you've put before us that you have enabled us through your spirit to do that our faith would grow. Father, where we need to be made aware of how little our faith is, would you do that, however painful it may be? but with the end and the goal that faith would mature in each of us here. We pray this in your name. Amen.